Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's great to be with you once again. Thanks for joining me. It is Wednesday, June 7th. Today is the last study in this series from 1st and 2nd Peter. So we're going to wrap up by studying the last chapter of 2nd Peter, 2nd Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. And we're going to talk about anticipating the Lord's coming. There's a lot to talk about today, but before we get there, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing love and grace that you've given us, the opportunity of freedom to study your word. Lord, for all that have come today, I ask your blessing on them. Open our hearts to receive your truth today, and may you find us doers of your word. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. At this point, Peter was finished with the difficult part of his second letter. He used strong words to denounce the false prophets and their misguided teachings. He had made it clear that they faced certain doom for the damage that they were doing to the spiritual lives of immature believers. Now the storm was over, and the apostle had words of peace. So turn with me in your Bible or Bible apps to 2 Peter chapter 3, and let's read that whole chapter, verses 1 to 18, and find out what Peter has to say. Here we go. This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. At the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth, he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Some of his commands are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. You already knew these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. 
Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. Let's begin, shall we, with verses 1 and 2, where Peter reminds us of the truth. Starting with verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Here's the first question. As I said moments ago in the previous chapters, Peter has fully condemned the false teachers plaguing Christians in the early church. Here in chapter 3, Peter continues with a new focus. What is it? Right off the bat, Peter refers to his readers as beloved, which is the Greek word agapeti. This word is related to the Greek word agape, which means selfless and sacrificial love. Selecting this word demonstrates how dearly Peter loved those he writes to, as well as their status in God's sight. As Christians, we are truly and always God's beloved ones. Peter also notes that this is his second letter to these readers. Through both of these letters, Peter's purpose in writing has been consistent, and that is to remind Christians of what they already know and urge them to act on it. More specifically, he writes to stimulate them to wholesome thinking, meaning sincerity or purity of understanding. Plato had used this phrase to refer to pure reason uncontaminated by the senses. The thinking and intentions of God's people must be able to stand up under scrutiny and not be led astray by immoral desires. Next up, verse 2. It says, I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. This verse continues Peter's thought. He wants them to be thinking clearly for the purpose of remembering two things. What are those two things? First, Peter wants believers to remember the words or predictions of the Holy Prophets. This refers to God's prophets sent to Israel in the Old Testament. Also, Peter wants them to remember Jesus' command or teachings made through the apostles. In this way, Peter is giving the same status to Jesus' apostles, which included himself and the rest of the twelve along with Paul, as to Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The point of remembering these things is to keep from being deceived by false teachers. Those who know and understand the truth as revealed by God in the Old Testament and now through Jesus' apostles in the New Testament will not be easily led astray by the lies of the wolves among the flock of God. Next, let's look at verses 3 through 7 and talk about mockers of God's truth. Starting with verse 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. Here's the question. When did the last days begin? And what did Peter say about the scoffers that will come in those last days? So the last days began with Christ's resurrection and will continue until his return when he will set up his kingdom and judge all humanity. It's interesting to note that in Matthew 24, 11, Jesus himself had warned that false prophets would come and lead many away from the truth. And in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul tied the work of these false teachers to the last days before the return of Christ. Peter said the scoffers would deny Jesus Christ and therefore deny his second coming. He said these false teachers would laugh at the truth of God's word and instead follow their own desires. So he called the believers to remember the scriptures and to live to please God. Next up, verse 4, it reads, They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? 
From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Here's the question. Continuing from the previous verse, what was the focus of these false teachers? Their focus was on Christ's second coming. Jesus had promised that he would come back. I would encourage you, check out Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27. But many years had passed and nothing had happened. The scoffers based their argument on the fact that everything has remained the same since the world was first created. That's what the verse said. Many first century Christians believed that Jesus would come in their lifetime. When Christians began to die without experiencing the Lord's return, some began to doubt. These were prime targets for the false teachers who pointed out that perhaps it was all a lie and that Christ was never going to return. The false teachers argued that ever since creation, the world has continued in a natural order, a system of cause and effect, if you will. They did not believe that God would intervene or allow anything out of the ordinary, such as miracles, to occur. So they scoffed at teachings about a second coming and the end of the world. Next up, verses 5 and 6, they read, They deliberately forgot that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water, and he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. Here's the question. According to Peter, what were the scoffers forgetting? The scoffers' argument from the previous verse was that the world had remained unchanged since creation. But what they were forgetting was that God made the heavens. The creation disproves their all-things-continue argument because the creation of the earth was an imposed change on the formless void, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. The very reason the world was continuing on in a stable, predictable pattern was because God, in his grace, had created it that way. But this stability should not be taken for granted. The false teachers deliberately forgot that God also had destroyed the evil world with a mighty flood. Peter's whole point is that God is ready and willing to disrupt the natural course of the world as it suits him, including using the natural world he created to bring judgment on the sins of humanity. Next is verse 7. It reads, And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. Here's our question. In this verse, Peter reveals that God will bring destruction on the earth again. How will he do it? We already know that in Noah's day, the earth was judged by water. At the second coming, it will be judged by fire. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 66 verses 15 and 16, Malachi chapter 4 verse 1, and Revelation chapter 19 verse 20, and also Revelation 20 verses 10 to 15. Judgment has already been decided and ungodly people will be destroyed. It's only a matter of God's timing. Peter's point is that the false teachers are dead wrong. Christ is returning and judgment is in fact coming. Now let's look at verses 8 through 10 and talk about God's patience, starting with verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Peter had already made his point that Christ would certainly return and bring judgment, but the question still remained, why was the Lord delaying so long? So here's our question. Peter offers two reasons here in verse 8 for that. What are they? The answer is, God is eternal. First and foremost, he's not limited as humans are by the perception of years passing. More specifically, Peter references Psalm 90 verse 4, which says, For you, a thousand years are a passing day, 
as brief as a few night hours. If we took Peter's statement absolutely literally as modern people, then in God's eyes, it would have been a mere two days since Jesus promised to return. That, of course, is not the way Peter intends his statement. His point is that God is not bound by counting days from a human perspective. Time does not hold him. He does not wait or rush in the same sense that mere humans do, locked as we are into minutes, hours, and months. What seems like poor timing to us as limited people has a plan and a purpose known only to God. Next up, verse 9. It says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Here's the question. What is the second reason for the Lord being slow about his promise to return? In his love-driven patience, God is willing to give more time for more people to come to repentance. This is God's plan to allow more people opportunity to place their trust in Christ in order to enter into eternal relationship with him. God doesn't want anyone to perish or die. Peter likely refers to eternal death following God's judgment on the day of the Lord. The overall message of scripture is that God does not desire anyone's damnation. That is, he would prefer that all would be saved. But in his sovereignty and power, God decided not to demand or force all people to actually be saved. As Peter tells us, that's one reason God allows more time, the very time mocked by the false teachers prior to the return of Christ. He is mercifully creating more space for more people to repent and turn to him. Next up, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Our question is, in this verse, Peter repeats a warning issued by Jesus Christ himself. What is that warning, and what does it mean? The warning is that Jesus is definitely coming back to judge the earth, and it will be swift, sudden, unexpected, and terrible for those who do not believe in him. Let's take a look at three key aspects of what Peter is saying here. First, the verse says, The heavens will pass away in a terrible noise. This describes the end of the earth's atmosphere and the sky above. Next, it says, The very elements themselves will disappear in fire. This could mean that the celestial bodies will also be destroyed, the sun, moon, stars, and planets. And lastly, it says, the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. This is an extremely difficult phrase to determine the specifics on, though there have been many, many variations given through the years. Some of the readings speak of the earth disappearing, others of it being burned up, and others of it being exposed so that all the works that people counted on in this earth in place of God will be revealed for their futility, and they will be annihilated. I would encourage you to read Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. When will these events occur? Some have placed them between the events of Revelation 20, which is the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan's doom and the final judgment, and Revelation 21, the new heaven, new earth, and the descent of the new Jerusalem. Peter explained that this earth will not last forever. As God intervened in the past to judge the earth by water, so one day he will intervene again. But in that day, the judgment will be by fire, and everything will be destroyed. And those who presume to take God's delay of this judgment to mean that they can do as they please will find themselves surprised upon his return. When this destruction occurs, 
there will be no second chances and no escape for those who have chosen to disobey the Lord. So let's look at verses 11 through 16 and talk about a new home. First up, verses 11 and 12. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. Here's our question. In light of all that's happening, Peter asks his readers to consider what that means for their lives right now. What should their focus be? I believe Peter is saying that in light of the coming destruction, Christians should fully examine their lives so that they are holy and godly. This would be in direct contrast to the unholy living and godlessness found in the world. Such lives, he says, lived through faith in Jesus Christ, will continue on after the coming destruction. And because of that knowledge, Christians need not fear the day. In fact, they should look forward to it. Peter wrote that the believers could also actually hurry it along by continuing to live holy and godly lives, praying and telling people about the gospel. Christians are not called to sit and wait on the inevitable end. Instead, our mission during our time on earth is to live for God and tell the world the gospel message. Jesus explained in Mark 13:10 that before his return, the good news must first be preached to all the nations. The verse ends by saying God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. This will happen as a direct result of the coming of the day of God. The earth's destruction will not be the result of any natural winding down of the universe, but the result of God's sovereign will occurring according to his plan. Next up, verse 13, it says, But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth that he's promised, a new world filled with God's righteousness. The question is, what does Peter say believers are looking forward to, and what does that mean? Believers look forward to the end of the earth only because it means the fulfillment of another of God's promises, his creation of the new heavens and new earth. Does Peter mean that our current heavens and earth will be completely destroyed or replaced with a brand new planet, or perhaps a whole new universe? Or is he saying that God will purify our current heavens and earth with fire, creating a new world on the same planet after all the unrighteousness has been burned away from this one. Theologians and scholars have differed on that point for hundreds of years. In truth, it's difficult for us to know exactly what God's fiery judgment or the new heavens and earth will be like. What does seem clear is that the judgment will be terrible and final, and that the new earth and heavens will be a real, physical place where God himself lives with us. The Apostle John confirms Peter's prophecy in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5, including these hopeful words, God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Amen. Next, verse 14 says, And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. The question is, what does Peter say believers are to do while waiting for these things to happen, and how are we to accomplish it? Peter echoes the beginning of his letter here. He says that Christians now, in God's power, should work to live up to those things that are true of us in Christ. We should work to root the sin out of our lifestyles and to fully engage in our peaceful relationship with God. We don't do this to earn our place in God's family. We do it because we already have one. Next, verses 15 and 16. 
And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. The question is, what reminder is Peter giving here, and how does the Apostle Paul figure into all of this? As he did in verse 9, Peter again writes that any such delay in Jesus' second coming is motivated only by God's patience. He desires to bring salvation to as many as possible. God's timing is motivated by love, not indifference. Peter recognizes here that Paul has written something similar. Maybe he had in mind Romans 2.4, where Paul mentions God's patience and says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. In any case, Peter acknowledges that Paul's wisdom comes from God and calls Paul a beloved brother. This is helpful to us because it confirms what is already clear from a careful reading of the New Testament. The inspired writings of each of the books establish and support each other. Peter, Paul, and the other writers all wrote the words of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 16, having praised the Apostle Paul as a beloved brother speaking with wisdom given by God, Peter acknowledges that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. He also refers to Paul's writings as scripture. Both of these are important ideas. First, this reveals that at least some of Paul's letters were already considered the word of God, even as early as Peter's day. Peter recognized that Paul spoke with authority and on behalf of the Lord. That helps to confirm that the New Testament writers and apostles were not competing with each other, they understood that they together were delivering God's words to God's people. Secondly, though, some of Paul's writings were hard to understand. We have certainly seen the same with Peter's letters. The best way to understand some Bible passages is not always clear or obvious. Unfortunately, according to Peter, there are those who see difficult passages as an opportunity to distort the overall truth of God's word. Either due to ignorance or instability, they twist the meaning of a difficult passage to try to make Scripture say what it actually does not. God takes his word seriously, and he holds those accountable who distort it. Peter warns that destruction comes to those who do so. The bottom line is that all of us must handle God's word with respect, honesty, and a healthy dose of fear of getting it wrong, even when it's hard to understand. Absolutely true. Lastly, today, let's look at verses 17 and 18 and talk about grace and knowledge. First up, 17, it says, You already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. What is Peter's point here in verse 17? That's our question, really simply. What is Peter's point here in verse 17? Peter wanted his readers to be warned ahead of time about the danger of the false teachers, explaining the false teachers' tactics and future destruction. Being forewarned, the believers would not be carried away by the errors of the false teachers. To be carried away means to be led astray into error. The word pictures a person following along behind a crowd. The implication is that keeping company with false teachers or those who follow them will inevitably cause the believer to be led astray and lose their secure footing. Now, the most defensible interpretation of this phrase is that Peter refers to the confidence and sense of stability which comes from living in the truth. 
Peter warns against losing our intellectual and spiritual security, not our eternal salvation. There is peace which comes only from trusting God and his word absolutely. And now the last verse for today and our study of the Peter series, verse 18. It says, rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen. In this closing verse, Peter urges his readers to grow in two areas. What are they? The areas of growth are these, my friends, the grace of Jesus and the knowledge of him. To grow in grace does not mean to get more and more of God's grace necessarily. Grace, by definition, is unearned and unworked for, the unmerited favor of God. By his grace, God has forgiven our sins and given us full rights as his children in Christ. We can't get more of that. But living under the grace of Jesus provides us a huge opportunity to grow spiritually stronger and deeper. Peter wrote in chapter 1 that we are not missing anything we need to lead the life God calls us to. Now it's time to do it. One way to grow under the grace of God is to grow in our knowledge of Christ. This implies two ideas. The first is knowing more and more about Christ in our minds. In other words, information. The other is getting to know Jesus better and better in our relationship with him. Both contribute to making us more productive servants. Peter describes Jesus as both our Lord and our Savior. To really know him, we must continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to live in relationship with Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we, like Peter, will reach a single conclusion. Jesus is the one who is due glory both in this moment and forever. Amen and amen. Well, folks, this brings us to the end of our study of 2 Peter chapter 3, and it completes our entire study of First and Second Peter. What a journey it has been. I hope that you have learned a lot and you've been able to apply what you've learned to your life and walk with Christ even in a stronger posture. Now, we will not be meeting next week, June 14th, but I will be back on the following Wednesday, June 21st, so two weeks from now, and we'll begin a brand new study of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Once again, thank you for taking time to join me throughout this study. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, you can catch up right here on this media platform. I'll see you back here in two weeks. Until then, take care, God bless you, and go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.